Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, many of us have probably been on a bit of a canoe trip at some point in our lives, but how about this one? Caleb Watson just finished a solo 3,000-kilometer journey over 125 days across the vast Northwest Territories right up to the Arctic Ocean. It was not without its challenges. He joins us to tell us all about it. Jellyfish don't have brains, can you imagine? So how is it that they can learn from their mistakes? Researchers think they can. We find out why. And there is a buzz in the air right now around the Johnson Space Center in Houston after a capsule containing a piece of a near-Earth asteroid arrived there today after touching down in the Utah desert on Sunday, the end of a 3 billion kilometer journey. Canada played a key role in the years-long mission, and we head to Houston for an update. But first, the Speaker of the House is apologizing for inviting and honoring a 98-year-old Ukrainian constituent who fought with a Nazi unit in the Second World War during Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's visit to Parliament on Friday. We look at what possibly could have gone so absolutely wrong and ask how it could have happened. And we look at the very serious fallout it's caused not just here at home, but right around the world. And we begin tonight with real-life drama in Ottawa in an episode that will no doubt go down in memory as one of the great blunders surrounding the visit of a foreign leader. The House Speaker, Anthony Rota, apologized again today for honoring a Ukrainian who fought in a Nazi unit during the Second World War during President Zelensky's stop at Parliament on Friday. Here he is. I wish to apologize to the House, and I'm deeply sorry that I have offended many in my, with my gestures and remarks. I would also like to add that this initiative was entirely my own. The individual in question being from my writing and having been brought to my attention, no one, including you, my fellow parliamentarians, or the Ukraine delegation, was privy to my remarks prior to their delivery. It is a remarkable statement from the Speaker of the House, who, by the way, is elected, is no longer technically an MP or a member of the party. He's independent when he becomes the Speaker. So he's taking full responsibility for inviting Yaroslav Hunka to attend Zelensky's address to Parliament, even recognizing him, which led to standing ovations from Zelensky himself and parliamentarians and, parliamentarians and others on hand. Here's the Speaker on Friday describing Hunka as a veteran who fought for Ukrainian independence against the Russians. He's a Ukrainian hero, a Canadian hero, and we thank him for all his service. Thank you. Right, but it wasn't long before questions started about who exactly he'd fought for, where, and when. On Sunday, the Friends of the Simon Wiesen, Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center for Holocaust Studies said in a statement that Hunka served in the 14th Waffen Grenadier Division of the SS, also known as the First Ukrainian Division, uh, and was joined by several other Jewish groups on the eve of Yom Kippur, no less, and demanding an apology. The Prime Minister today called it deeply embarrassing. Obviously, it's extremely upsetting that this happened. Uh, the speaker, speaker has uh, acknowledged his mistake uh, and has apologized. Uh, but this is something that is deeply embarrassing to the Parliament of Canada and, by extension, to all Canadians. The NDP and the bloc are calling for the Speaker to resign. The opposition is pinning the blame squarely on the government, especially the Prime Minister, including Andrew Scheer, of course, who's a former Speaker of the House himself. Is it the government's position that when we have a foreign head of state that the government does zero 
security vetting for who will be in the same room as that head of state. Is that the message that we're sending to our allies? Well, to help us wade through all of this, I'm joined by Global News' chief political correspondent, David Aiken from Ottawa. David, as always, thank you. Yeah, no problem, man. Good to chat with you. Ah, this one, I mean, I watched, obviously, watched little bits and pieces of Zelensky's visit to Parliament on Friday. And then this sort of started to emerge. You just thought, what could have possibly gone so terribly wrong here? What, what's the scuttlebutt, David? Well, first of all, if you, if, if you listen to Anthony Rota, our, the Speaker of our House of Commons, what went wrong was him and him alone. That he, he had the initiative and that the Speaker in the House of Commons has, uh, you know, a great deal of power over activities in the House of Commons, including who's in the chamber and not. And every speaker is always given uh, seats in what's called the speaker's gallery. So this would be a a spot above the House of Commons, and uh, he can put whoever he wants in those seats. And so he had a constituent uh, in his riding in North Bay, Ontario, um, a constituent who we understand approached him or families of this constituent Mm -hmm. uh, approached him. We're not sure. But in any event, um, this fellow apparently was known in in the North Bay community as a Ukrainian who in the Second World War fought for Ukrainian independence against Russian soldiers. And that's really all that Rhoda took. That's all he needed to hear in order to put him into the House of Commons where Zelensky was and say, wow, this is not the first time, uh, this current war is not the first time Ukraine's been fighting off Russian aggression. I got a guy in my riding. He's a hero. Look at him. He was fighting Russians back in the Second World War. But unfortunately, he was fighting Russians while wearing the uniform of a Nazi soldier. He, um, in 1941, uh, uh, this guy uh, decided to join the uh, German army. Uh, his name is Yaroslav Hunka, just mm-hmm. to, to put his name there. So Hunka was 16 in 1941. And he, like many young Ukrainian men in 1941, he had almost certainly lost relatives, whole families, whole villages in the Holodomor that Stalin perpetuated on the Ukrainians in the 1930s. And, and just to remind everybody, the Holodomor was the Ukrainian Holocaust in which Stalin literally withheld food from millions of peasants. People in cities got food. People in the villages got it taken away from them. And they were starved to death on purpose by Stalin's. Millions died. That's the Holodomor. So that's that's the experience of Ukrainians in the 1930s so far yes. as Russia. Zelensky goes. mentioned it. He mentioned the monument at Edmonton during his speech on Friday. Yeah, Ex- Exactly. Mm-hmm. And um, and so this individual, and we don't know exactly his backstory, but he, he in, in uh, you know, I think 2001, he put a blog post up um, at a site that is uh, about activities of veterans of this area in which he made no bones about the fact that he... Uh, joined this uh, particular unit, the uh, Waffen SS unit. Um, Ukrainians could not join the German army per se. That was only for Germans. So the volunteers were formed into SS units. But his unit nominally was fighting for independence, nominally wanted to sh- sign up to anybody who was killing Russians. That was just fine with him. Um, and if it was the guy, this guy Hitler, so be it. Um, in 1941, the world did not know a lot about what we now know about the final solution. That's not to make excuses for anybody, but it's just the, the time and the place. In any event, yeah. this unit, the 14th SS Galicia Division, the Waffen SS, 
absolutely this unit was involved in ethnic cleansing, mass killing, mass murder of Jews, of Poles, of Ukrainians. That's incontrovertible. Whether Honka did anything like that himself, um, well, there's no suggestion he isn't. There's no investigations of him as a, quote, war criminal, um, but his unit was definitely committing right. war crimes. And clearly he was he was investigated and allowed into the country at the time. So there must have been we, some look at his background. We think we think that's we normally. Yeah, the, we, we don't. don't I mean, sure. we don't know yeah. for sure. Um, all, all that aside, I mean, the fact is there he was right there. He, there was. he was there. He was and, being. And, and of course, we know how complicated that chapter in ukrainian history can be oh yeah and there he was uh, but this oh has caused God, yeah. a huge i mean the back the, the fallout from this has been almost almost indescribable i mean the the, the you know it's just been such a disaster for oh, this yeah. government you've, you've got the russians there they've weaponized this immediately because the russians have falsely claimed all along that this is all a world of war about defending russia from ukrainian nazis but that has been the line that putin and, and all his all his apologists in russian media have been saying all along and now they can go see told you we're fighting the nazis so yep. already russia is, is weaponizing this incident that rhoda essentially caused um in russian media um our allies aren't happy poland for example uh poland has is through their ambassador here in canada has asked for an official apology mm-hmm. um and though rhoda has taken responsibility outside our borders it doesn't matter headlines in the indian press right now of course the indian press you know they're already uh taken as much of a strip on Trudeau as they can over that whole uh, murder of the Sikh uh, Kalistini activist in, mm-hmm. in Surrey. And and there's headlines in the Indian press, Trudeau invited a Nazi to the Zelensky thing. Oh, it's so, everywhere, David. It's, it's ever, I mean, you know, first yeah. it was the India stuff and now it's this stuff and it's just been worldwide. This one has just been worldwide. Do you, I mean, where there's been a lot of speculation, obviously, about what the PMO would and wouldn't know about who was on that guest list and why. And I've spent time, you know, I've spent time there. It's perfectly conceivable, but that this gentleman was invited without anyone knowing who he was, particularly. I, yeah, I mean, it, I don't, I like, but it's we don't know for sure. Yeah. It's absolutely, well, it, it absolutely, you're right. It's absolutely in the realm, not only of possibility, but likelihood. Now, Anthony Rhoda, um, those who know him, I've known him for nearly 20 years, uh, 18 years. Uh, he's an absolute gentleman, in my opinion. Um, uh, he is an upstanding, honorable individual. And um, I think he will reflect on what has happened and his role in it. And, and I don't think he'll be the speaker by the end of the week on his own accord. I think he will. And it may not be the end of the week. It might be later this evening or tomorrow. So you don't think that, I mean, in this case, clearly people are asking for him to step down. Uh, the conservatives are more intent on trying to pin this all on the prime minister. I get why they'd want to do that. But you don't think that Rota survives. You don't think the Speaker of the House survives this one? No. So let me sketch that out. The first thing that happened today, every Monday, the House begins its day at 11 o'clock in the morning local time. It starts with a prayer. And Anthony Rota entered the chamber as Speaker. And he always does this on Monday mornings. And he started with the prayer. And then he said, I'd like to make a brief statement. And he, he apologized to the House for his actions. It was a very heartfelt apology. The first person to get up was Karina Gould. Karina Gould is the Liberal House Leader. She's the government House Leader. She is also the descendant of Holocaust survivors. As she mm-hmm. told the House, um, most of her family walked into Auschwitz-Birkenau and only her grandfather and his brother walked out. Uh, she stood and applauded for this guy. And then she even posed for a picture that she put on her Instagram feed with this guy. Mm. And she felt awful after doing that. And so did every member of the house applauded for this guy. And then to their horror discovered he was a Nazi. Mm. So she uh, expressed her, you know, uh, she expressed her hurt to the speaker. She didn't call for his resignation. Liberals, no liberal I've seen on the record has called for his resignation. But Gould 
And other ministers and liberals I speak to privately have said he probably should reflect on his future. So you think about that. So that's the governing party. The best they can do is say, reflect on your future. A few minutes after that, Peter Julian, the New Democrat MP from New Westminster, he got up and said, I'm sorry. And he was very respectful. I like you a lot. You've done a lot of good work, Speaker, but this is uh, an unforgivable error and you have to resign. So, boom, now the New Democratic caucus believes he should resign. The Bloc Québécois took the morning to come to the same conclusion, but the BQ is now also you should resign. As you mentioned, the Conservatives have their judgment reserved on the fitness of, of Rhoda to be Speaker. The Conservatives are in the belief that it's this is not and cannot all be Rhoda's fault. Somehow, the Prime Minister's office and the, the Trudeau government, per se, they're at fault. The buck stops with the PMO. They should have known. You have a leader like Zelensky. He's in the middle of a war. You make darn sure who's in the House of Commons and who isn't. That is the conservative line. They've been prosecuting that point all day long, and I suspect they will continue to. But even still, even though they haven't, the, the conservatives hadn't said resign, I was in the House today, so I could see some of the heckling back and forth. And normally when there's some heckling, the speaker's going to stand up and say, hey, you, cut out the heckling. And the speaker has to have some sort of moral authority to be able to get people to stop heckling. Well, early on, Karina Gould, the liberal government house leader, standing up, giving, talking about this issue. And Chris Warkington, who's a conservative MP from northern Alberta, he starts heckling Gould. And Rhoda yeah. stands up and says, stop and show some respect. That's what Rhoda says to Warkington. And Warkington goes, are you kidding me? You're telling me to show some respect? So you, I mean, th that's a clear demonstration. David, it's also bad it. for. I mean, yes. I, I realize that Rhoda, listeners should understand this. Rhoda, again, as Speaker of the House, is not an, is is still a, an elected Liberal member of Parliament, but he's not an MP anymore. He's he's the Speaker of the House, which means he is. Yeah, he does stand independently. He's the referee. Just, the damage that this has done, the last, the, just the damage this does to the reputation of this government and this country, to be frank, uh, well, is, is 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 hard to hard to overstate. Yeah, absolutely. And again, that's people will not know the nuance between, oh, the speaker is not really a liberal MP and they may not believe uh, uh, protestations that uh, from Rhoda and the liberal government that they didn't have any idea. They're likely going to believe the conservatives are saying, how could you not know this? So there's enough out there that uh, headlines beyond our border that this has been a big black eye. And uh, and it's probably meant a lot of conversations between our diplomats overseas and uh their counterparts to explain and possibly apologize. The prime minister himself was not in the house today, but mm -hmm. outside the house, he did acknowledge this was a major embarrassment to Canada. There's no question about it. And uh, for that reason, Rhoda is going to resign. Not good enough for the conservatives. They say the PM uh, once again, trying to pin this on other people, failing to take responsibility himself. Um, I don't know how we're going to find out. It's going to be hard to prove a negative for the liberals um, and the conservatives just going to stick to that line that uh, how could you not know when you invite Zelensky, uh, a leader like that, to your House of Commons? How would you not know the backstory on all these individuals you're, you're letting in? Well, it's we may uh, have some yeah. new rules on that. Yeah, it certainly it certainly casts a real pall on what had been a pretty celebratory day when uh, Zelensky was mm -hmm. in town. Uh, David, as always, thank you. Yeah, no problem, Ben. Stay tuned. <laughs> Let's let's go back to Ottawa now and this just the fallout from this disaster that happened on Friday afternoon. Here's House Speaker Anthony Rota apologizing today to MPs. This was a constituent who wanted to see what wanted to be here, and I recognized him. It was my decision, and I apologize profusely. I cannot, I cannot tell you how regretful it is. 
And it may not be good enough for some of you, and for that I apologize. Anthony Rota there. We spoke to David Aiken in the last half hour about this. So in Parliament today, he got up to apologize again. He issued a, a written statement yesterday. After it was revealed, he invited a Ukrainian veteran who had fought in a Nazi unit during the Second World War to attend President Zelensky's address to Parliament on Friday. He was even recognized, 98-year-old Yaroslav Hunka, recognized by the Speaker as a veteran who fought for, quote, Ukrainian independence against the Russians. He was given a standing ovation, including by President Zelensky, who you remember is in fact Jewish. Well, Rhoda today again told MPs that he wants to be clear that it was his decision alone to invite, to invite Hunka to the House. Uh, government House Leader Karina Gould, who who's, has family who were killed in the Holocaust, calls the move, quote, deeply embarrassing for Parliament, Canada and Ukraine, and says neither the government nor the Ukrainian delegation knew anything about it. Here she is. However... Given this deeply embarrassing situation, I think, for all of us as parliamentarians on all sides, I think it is very important that we collectively work together to strike this recognition from the record, and I will work with my colleagues to do that. Now, there was some backlash against that, as a matter of fact, from the opposition who felt that it shouldn't be taken out of the record, that in fact... It should be kept there as a reminder of what happened during President Zelensky's visit, that you can't just erase history, even if you don't like it. You can't take a magic eraser to a huge mistake like that. Here's Conservative MP Michelle Rempel-Gardner on the same issue. It is a stain on our country. And I refuse, as a member of this place who represents 120,000 Canadians, to collectively share responsibility with a government that has a pattern of not vetting questionable individuals that they take meetings with. Now, in this case, there are still questions about how he would have ended up there. He is a constituent of uh, the speakers. He uh, did indeed. I mean, he's someone, if you look, if you Google the name, there are photographs of him with Ukrainian flags during uh, rallies uh, after the invasion, after Russia's invasion began. Uh, so who knows exactly how he ended up there and what kind of vetting would be done for a 98-year-old uh, Ukrainian without any real background on him? There should have been more, obviously. It also shows a real lack of understanding understanding about the history of the Second World War, which is another issue that we'll get into here. But, I mean, Ukraine's enemies have been piling on. Of course, Russia ridiculously claims that its invasion of Ukraine, uh, its full-scale invasion of Ukraine, was to eliminate Nazism from Ukraine, which, of course, is just ridiculous. It's always been ridiculous. It is a ridiculous argument. But, especially in light of, of the slaughter of innocents that Russia has been engaged in in Ukraine over the last 19 months or so, an absolute unconscionable slaughter of innocent civilians. It happened again yesterday. Uh, but this is the excuse they use. So if you make this kind of mistake, of course, who jumps on it right away but them? And their proxies arguing, well, of course, this is what we were telling you all along, no matter how absolutely untrue that really is. Uh, joining me now with more on this is Marcus Kolga. He's founder of Disinfo Watch and a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier's Institute, uh, Institute Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad. Thanks for your time, Marcus. This one, I mean, it's been a head scratcher. It really has been a head scratcher. Yeah, it's. Uh, I don't think I've ever witnessed anything like this. Certainly not in my lifetime. Certainly not over the past couple of decades. Uh, you know, it's it's certainly not advancing our interests abroad. I mean, it just it's put a freeze on them. And I think that uh, you know the world is sort of watching us and wondering what's going on in in Canada. And most importantly, it's uh, it's President Zelensky. You know, who mm -hmm. 
came to Canada, um, had a, a wonderful 24 hours in this country, gave a historic uh, and a moving emotional speech in the House of Commons, which I had the privilege to to actually witness on Friday afternoon, and then a, a wonderful speech in, in Toronto. Uh, all of that um, has now been derailed by, you know, this ignorance, this this very stupid decision to allow uh, this one person to effectively ruin all of that and derail uh, President Zelensky's message and uh, and certainly Canada's role right now, the successes we've had in supporting Ukraine. I mean, you were there, and I, I noticed this. I didn't actually see that part of uh, of Speaker Rhoda's introductions. I didn't notice it. But in retrospect, I mean, no, no one, and this says a lot about our, our about the whole event in many ways, no one stopped to think, wait a second, what, what, what years are we talking about? I mean, I think in many ways, we're not, we're not quite, we're not, our radar's not up on stuff like that. And I can see why within the speaker, speaker's office, within that entourage, that this got completely missed. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, it should be on our radar. Um, Russia has been using um, this sort of historical manipulation and the label of, of, uh, of accusing any of its critics uh, certainly in Central and Eastern Europe, in Europe, Central and Eastern Europe, and beyond, of of being Nazis for, you know, better part of the Cold War, and certainly over the past uh, decade, um, and so you know, as someone who has been um, monitoring and analyzing this this those specific narratives in Russian disinformation, when I was sitting there and uh, and the speaker introduced this individual, I immediately turned to my colleague and I said, you know, we don't know who this person is, but this could be a problem. And I said that immediately. Right. Um, and um, it, it really didn't hit me as a surprise when all of this information came out about him. And, and unfortunately, this feeds directly into Russian disinformation that is targeting Ukrainians, that is, is, uh, has introduced this false accusation, this false claim that everyone, in, you know, the, all Ukrainians are Nazis, essentially, that the government uh, is, is run by Nazis, that, that uh, Ukraine's Jewish president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is himself a Nazi. Um, it just feeds into all of that. And all of that, as far as, you know, Ukrainian Canadians are concerned, and other uh, Canadians of Central and Eastern European heritage who are also smeared with the same sort of narrative. Um, it, uh, it serves to undermine them. It serves to dehumanize them. It serves to silence them and discredit them. Um, so this is, this, this is a problem that, uh, you know, it's obviously incredibly insensitive uh, to, to the Canadian uh, Jewish community, especially those families who's, who suffered uh, during, during the Holocaust. Um, it is offensive to Ukraine's government and uh, it's extremely problematic uh, for Canadians of, of Ukrainian heritage as well. So, you know, they're, you know everyone is hit by this uh, very, very stupid decision. Yeah, I, I, it just feels like the ultimate unfortunate own goal, such self, self-inflicted and, and, and sort exactly. of... Exactly. Yeah, I, um, it wasn't surprising to see Russian state media jump on this like it was, you know, like it was Christmas Day. Yeah, well, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I've been uh, patrolling sort of the, the international media um, and to see what they're saying. And, and thankfully, I think most of our allies, uh, European allies, they're, they're not paying too much attention to this. I think it's a, they see it as a bit of a sideshow. But certainly uh, Russian state media is, uh, is indeed all over it. And what we're seeing, unfortunately, here in Canada is that 
uh, a lot of these uh, fellow travelers, uh, pro-Kremlin, pro-Russian activists uh, and proxies are actually uh, exploiting the situation. They're uh, unfortunately being platformed on on mainstream media and their voices are being heard there. And that's also problematic because then it legitimizes uh, those uh, voices who are helping to amplify and enable Russian disinformation in this country. Which is ironic considering today, I think there was a UN report coming out confirming that, in fact, prisoners of war, Ukrainian prisoners of war, had been tortured. I mean, those are the kinds of stories. I mean, it's just, you're right, this one issue managed to dwarf just about anything else, or I should rephrase that, this one issue managed to overshadow everything that was good about Zelensky's visit. I think. I mean, I don't think that's ultimately true in the long run, but it certainly feels like it tonight. Yeah, I hope you're right. Um, you know, and I, and I hope this this goes away. I hope that the government does the right things. And I hope that the opposition, um, you know, they, they're going to have their day or two. I hope they scale it back. And I hope that uh, President Zelensky's message does eventually come back to the forefront. I hope that the, the tragedy that is uh, continuing to unfold in Ukraine, you mentioned the fact that uh, this UN report uh, uh, looked at Ukrainians who are being tortured by the Russians. The fact that Odessa, you know, a hotel was just bombed. I mean, what's there's no, uh, you know, that's mi- not a military target. There's a civilian uh, piece of infrastructure that was targeted by Russian missiles overnight. None of this news is really breaking through. And I hope that we can get over this and, and start moving on with with things that are far more important and defending Ukraine and helping it uh, win this war. Marcus, what do you do with this? Because you've unleashed a certain something. I don't know how much staying power it has. Uh, We've seen the speaker apologize, but not resign. Uh, We've certainly seen the government not take, you know, sort of blame this, and perhaps rightly in terms of the protocol on the uh, speaker himself and his office. But ultimately, I mean, the buck, if you look abroad, the buck kind of stops with the government, right? How does this happen with with someone as important as President Zelensky making his first sort of post-invasion visit to this country, such an important one, not for just for him, but for the Canadian-Ukrainian community as well. Uh, well, I mean, I think that the, the the speaker's apology today was heartfelt. I think that we have to look at uh, the intent, uh, and and I'm I, I'm not sure that that the speaker uh, intended. Uh, he I, I'm I, I'm pretty much convinced that he was ignorant mm-hmm. of uh, this individual's uh, background. And so I, I hope that Parliament accepts his apology. It's entirely possible that he'll have to resign. I I actually was uh, betting on him resigning at some point today. That hasn't happened, but I think you know we've we've still got a couple of days of this left. Um, will that um, fix the problem? No, I think the the damage was done uh, as soon as uh, the speaker introduced that individual. Um, that damage, uh, I I wouldn't say that it's irreparable. But it will uh, reverberate now for quite some time. I think that the impact, unfortunately, uh, on the Ukrainian community will be felt. Um, you know, I think that the unequivocal support that they were uh, enjoying uh, for quite some time uh, may not be entirely there. I think that uh, Central and Eastern European uh, Canadians, uh, when they contact their members of parliament, if there's any sort of public events with them, um, there will always now be this uh, this this doubt uh, when 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 they're involved, at least for the in the short term, there will be that. Um, uh, the other problems that will continue to linger beyond this will be, as I mentioned earlier, um, the disinformation aspect, the fact that we have 
uh, Kremlin-aligned proxies who are taking advantage of this situation. They're exploiting this situation um, to advance their own profiles. Uh, the fact that um, they've been included among the voices in um, in mainstream mainstream Canadian media is problematic because this is now uh, legitimized them. It has essentially laundered the reputation of essentially Russian propagandists. Um, and I think that the, Can the Canadian media in general has to be extremely careful moving forward. And in their own vetting, um, editors, producers need to make sure of who they are inviting to speak on this issue, to make sure uh, that they look into their backgrounds. And they're not bringing on guests who have demonstrated extreme bias, especially the sort of anti-Ukrainian side, pro-Kremlin uh, bias that we've seen in a few of these. And I'm afraid that this uh, this threat is going to linger for uh, for some time as well. And they've been looking for a toehold for ages now, ever since the invasion, to be honest. They've been, people been looking for a toehold, and here, here it is. Here's the toehold. Uh, it does reveal something, though, and I think, I, I mean, I remember obviously working in Ukraine about the incredible complexities of of, of the war, of the, of the war period, the Second World War period in East, Central and Eastern Europe, and how little is understood oftentimes. I mean, here we are, Canada is a wholehearted supporter of Ukraine's efforts in this war, rightly so. We have yeah. a, a huge Ukrainian diaspora, as you well know. But, you know, there is a history there that wasn't oft talked about once the Iron Curtain dropped. And, uh, you know, it's not one that many people in the West understand particularly well. So here we are. I mean, here we are dealing with the complexities of that time uh, in, in a way that we probably, not, in not a lesson we'd want to be learning this way right now. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right, Ben. Uh, you know, I... I'm uh, of Estonian heritage, so my uh, my parents actually fled Estonia in the fall of 1944. Um, not on their own, of course; they were infants, uh, but their their parents uh, took them from from Estonia from their from their homes, uh, fleeing the the Soviet occupation. Um, and I think that a lot of the rhetoric, the overly heated rhetoric that we've been hearing uh, over the past 24 hours, um, you know, the fact that anybody who uh, who fought against the Russians um, that they were Nazis is is uh, is is beyond unfair, and uh, I think it's uh, you know it it certainly doesn't apply to a, mo the majority of the Central and Eastern Europeans who came from fled that region after the Second World War. Um, you know, in in the fall of 1944, at least in the Estonian case, which is similar to many of the other you know the the other Baltic states, certainly Ukraine, Poland as well. Um, what was happening was that the Germans were, of course, retreating, thanks to the the efforts of the Allies. Um, and the Germans had, of course, occupied the Baltic states, Estonia, um, for, for a number of years during the Second World War. And so in the fall of 44, when the Germans were retreating and the Soviets were advancing, um, at least in Estonia, uh, there were a, a number of partisans who saw the opportunity to slow down the Soviet advance on the Eastern Front. And so for a moment in time, uh, they were shooting in the same easterly directions as some of the Germans, as the Germans were retreating. Um, but the hope for them was that they could slow down the Soviet advance as the Germans retreated out of Estonia, and that that would give them an opportunity to finally de redeclare independence and take back their sovereignty. And so, you know, this this part of history is is not frankly taught in in Canadian schools and and that applies to most of the countries of central and eastern europe they they many of them and most of them in fact um had very much the the same sort of experience 
Um, and, and that lack of understanding leads to these sorts of situations. And it opens the door to, to r- the Russian manipulation of history, to try and suggest and, and to smear uh, many of these, uh, these communities. And, you know, the only way of really solving that long term, there's no way of st- you know, uh, putting the genie back in the bottle right now. But the way of uh, solving this long term is to introduce this history into uh, our school curriculums, uh, because there are four and a half million Canadians of Central and Eastern European heritage, um, and their history, their experiences um, should be known to our fellow Canadians. And I think that would enrich them, and they would then better have a better understanding of the world around them as well. Marcus, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on, Ben. Let's head to Newfoundland now, because a year ago tonight, we were talking about the devastation that was uh, that fell on the community of Porto Basque because of storm surges caused by tropical storm Fiona as it just tore through that community. I mean, this is a, 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 a community that had been there for many, many, many generations, living perched on what can be sometimes a very hostile ocean and a very hostile climate. But the scope and scale inflicted on that community by Fiona, the damage, was just unbelievable. Dozens of homes destroyed, as many as $107 million worth of damage. Uh, A woman was killed, a 73-year-old woman was killed when her home was dragged out to sea. It is considered the most devastating storm in that province's history. So yesterday, the community gathered on what was a bright, warm September day to reflect on that day a year ago. And for some, it was a return. A year after a wave crashed into her home, Lori Dick says many in the town are still traumatized by the storm that destroyed so much. What a beautiful view we have of the sunset and stuff. But we're overlooking the water, but we're far away from it is where I wanted to be. I don't want to be close to no water. I don't care if it's a bay or a river. I don't want to be close to it. Nothing. Which is remarkable because Porto Basque, I mean, it's on the water. Living on the water was why people were there. Uh, Laurie says it's still hard to talk about how much Fiona changed their lives. And as they rebuild Porto Basque itself, they're trying to move people away from the shore. Ashley Smith is uh, with a climate change consulting firm called Fundamental Incorporated. And she says these discussions should be happening right across Newfoundland's coastal communities. Because most of the very small communities along our very long coast are positioned right on the water. So they're within a three meter contour. And like that is a vulnerable situation. Full stop. With more on this is Andrew Parsons. He's the Minister of Industry, Energy and Technology in Newfoundland and Labrador. He's also the MLA for Burgio Lapoil, which includes Porto Basque. Uh, Andrew, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Remarkable to think that it's been a year. It's sort of uh, flowing by and yet it doesn't feel that long ago. Um, just tell me about, about Porto Bass these days. How much has changed in that community over the past 12 months? Yeah, it's it's staggering to think that it's been um, been a full year. And there's times when it feels like it's flown. And there's other days when it feels like uh, no time has passed at all. It's uh, There's no doubt there's been a change to the community, both on a, a, physical, uh, a physical way. I mean, when you have you know, well over a hundred houses that are either demolished or in the process of being removed. Um, but I think the thing that really permeates the place now is the, I, I don't know, it's changed our way of life in many ways. I mean, we're, we're used to growing up on the water, living on the water. And for a lot of people that changed after the storm, it was, uh, it really, I think has laid some uh, deep seated in trauma, trauma people that it hasn't gone away. 
It's because, I mean, I've spent some time in Newfoundland and everyone always thinks of, of Newfoundland as being a place that's used to the ruggedness of the water, right? Because of just how how much so much of Newfoundland sits right beside this pretty unfriendly natural uh, climate. And yet this one seems to have been different, specifically in a place like Puerto Basque, where they had lived through storms over the centuries, right? Yeah, I mean, we've lived through, look, you know, if you tell me it's 150 kilometers of wind, we won't bat an eye. Um snow rain you know sometimes feeling like four seasons all wrapped up in an afternoon uh but this is the first time you saw waves of this sort coming in and tearing houses apart and moving like just physically restructuring the ground that we grew up on and that's the difference and it took away this sort of even in tough weather we felt we, we felt pretty invincible at times and i think that feeling was washed away What's the mood like now after a year? Because I, I spoke with Rene Roy, I think about six months ago on the six month anniversary. He's just written a book about what happened. And the process of rebuilding has been slow. And part of that is because not everyone wants to go back. So so it's not just like replacing what was there. It's sort of having to reimagine what a community like Porto Basque might look like. Yeah, I mean, look, it's uh, I mean, there's a lot of positives, too. And sometimes we uh, the the positive gets overshadowed with the, I guess, this sort of grief that was felt and the shock. But I mean, for the first couple of months after this happened, people had no idea where they were going to go, uh, what was going to happen, how they were they going to survive? You know, was their insurance going to show up? And I mean, so as a province, we I, I mean, we stepped up and many people now are, you know, fully taken care of and I think uh, appreciative of it. Uh, at the same time, I, I mean, just the sheer reality that you that takes time. Many people did take an opportunity to, you know, maybe this is the chance to move and be with your grandkids somewhere else. Maybe this sort of hastened uh, a, a departure that, you know, was probably going to take a little while. So we've seen some like that. But I think a lot of people just want to get past it. They want to get restarted. They want to refresh. They want to renew. And they're like, you know what? I've been through that. I've come through it. I'm. They, you know, there's there's a lot of strength there that I think sometimes we we all underestimate. What are some of the challenges that remain? I mean, I remember at the time there was there were real concerns about how the insurance money was going to come through, what was going to be available, and so on. What in fact has happened over the past twelve months? Then on that front, uh, well, the the reality is the insurance companies really didn't show up uh, at all, and that's not a matter that's closed yet. Uh, but we couldn't wait for people to go through litigation or arguing with them. They needed roofs over their heads. And we showed up and came up with what I think would be a pretty generous uh, financial package to help you know restart people. Uh, some things still take a lot of time. I mean, one of it is just the with the the I guess the just the impact that was felt, uh, and especially in a lot of people's homes, you're still seeing change happening. I mean, a lot of times when a foundation cracks, it takes a while for people to see the impacts, and that is something that's going to last a while. Uh, it just you know it's been a slow process trying to help get municipal uh, infrastructure repaired. Uh, you know, trailways. I mean, we have a trailway that crosses the entirety of the province that this storm demolished it and those things take a lot of time a lot of effort and certainly a lot of money so some things aren't where they uh were before but i think there's no doubt there's a a, a desire to get those things fixed back uh but look restructuring takes time rebuilding takes time and uh trying to do it at the same time figuring out what is the community going to look like in terms of where can people b rebuild or not rebuild 
all those things combined along with you know the uncertainty that comes with it has led to some stressful times at the for many you mentioned there was good news in all this too and i think that that shone through there was there was obviously gatherings yesterday to mark exactly a year today was sort of the toughest time we spoke to you a year ago today but what are some of the what have been some of the positives in all this because they do exist i'm sure absolutely i mean well number one just the way that the entire province and really the country showed up i mean the messages the donations the whether it was like personal or corporate, I mean, truckloads of food and supplies showing up for people in need, uh, the volunteers showing up uh, from all over uh, was really heartwarming. It was really good to see. It was a positive uh, time to see people come to help, you know, their neighbors in need. And I think that really stuck with a lot of us. Uh, The fact that you see people now that, you know, they've gotten through the sort of the, the stages of figuring out what does, uh, their you know financial situation looked like to rebuilding and getting in a new home. Some of these people, you can imagine, they've been living in a sort of uh, tenuous lifestyle since then in terms of figuring what, where that certainty is coming from, and when they, when they're given that certainty, it's an amazing feeling for them. Uh, I, I say that's two of the big ones there. Uh, just this summer, uh, there was a, a you know a concert put off in town. Uh, sort of like a, a, the first of hopefully what will be many. And just to see the crowd come together, and it was meant to be a Fiona-type benefit concert. Uh, just the feelings. I think it was probably the most positive time I've seen the community who really showed up en masse. Uh, you know, it, it was just a wonderful time. Everybody was in a great mood, and that's something that was really great to see. Andrew Parsons is with us this half hour. He's the Minister of Industry to Energy and Technology in Newfoundland and Labrador. He's the MLA for Bridgeo Lapoil, uh, which includes Porto Basque. It's been a year now, uh, a year and a day, actually, since that uh, devastating hurricane Fiona, the remnants of it, crashed into that community, causing millions of dollars of damage, uh, basically changing the geography of a town that had sat there and faced many, many challenges over many, many, many decades. And this one has proven to be a very big one. We're just talking about the anniversary itself and what lies ahead. It's also changed the way a lot of coastal communities, not just in Newfoundland and Labrador, but elsewhere in the country, sort of look at what the future might seem like. We'll talk a bit more about that after this. Uh, Andrew, when you look across around Newfoundland, though, right now, I imagine that what happened in Porto Basque has served as a wake-up call for a lot of co- coastal communities, not only in your province, but through the Maritimes, out west, other places where this is a reality now. Yeah, I mean, there's absolutely no doubt that this has resonated far beyond uh, this community and our our province. I mean, it's redefining how, you know, I guess how we settled in this province to begin with. We settled on the water for access to the fishing grounds. And now uh, a lot of people who grew up with that mentality and that mindset don't want to be there. And just, you know, what is, you know, we know that this type of situation is not going to be, we're going to see more of it. And climate change has certainly hastened that as well. Uh, So yeah, that's a big conversation that's going on, even internally from a, you know, a um, flood mapping zone and all these exercises we do as government to figure out, you know, uh, or sort of, plan for these events that's really been exacerbated that's really heightened uh, and and now we look at okay well, what happens the next time like if we we have to take lessons from this to prepare from uh multiple i guess multiple ways um but yeah no it's it's changed mindsets uh, no doubt like there's people that never would have thought of ever leaving the water and now they don't ever want to live near it 
And just the, as you were mentioning, the infrastructure itself, I remember speaking to a mayor um, outside of Halifax this summer when they had all their flooding and how just so much of what was built isn't built for what has arrived. And then that is a, a big problem oh, for yeah. a place like Newfoundland. And you need the money as well to try and help rebuild well, this. And that's not always just sitting there available to grab either. Not at all. I mean, this will change the way that uh, planning is done in the future, whether it be municipal planning or provincial investment in buildings. You cannot do things the same way. I think you're going to see conversations on where permits will be granted in order to build uh, what might have been a perfectly fine area before. I think we now have to more than ever factor in uh, weather events. You just have to do it. And uh, But at the same time, I, I don't think you'll see hesitation from people in doing that, given the fact that, again, one big change I've noticed. Was, so insurance here was storm surge was not a covered uh, a, a covered format in that now you're actually seeing people that depending on their postal code might not get coverage at all people are looking really? at the postal code and saying no we're not sure if we can provide coverage so like i say that the insurance industry uh is certainly looking at this and it's going to affect that industry and, and it's how we all i guess deal with it that's going to be a big thing to come yet yeah, that would have been a big wake-up call for people as well, all of a sudden not being able to get insurance for something that they've just watched destroy more than a few homes. Oh, my God. Well, I mean, prior to September 24th of last year, a lot of people didn't really – had not ever seen the the term storm surge. Uh, every one of us knows it now, and that was the non-insured, I guess, event that has led to a lot of the trouble we have here. Uh, but like I say, you know, as a province, we stepped up and, you know, we'll figure out the, sort of some of the symptoms after, uh, but we're trying to deal with the root issues that uh, were left with us. I imagine the people of Newfoundland and Labrador are, are marking yesterday and today and what followed. Uh, how should the rest of us be looking at it? Because uh, we wouldn't want to turn our eyes away now, even though it's been a year. I know it's the aftermath. It's the aftermath that is always the most difficult. You know, in the in the moment, there's so much adrenaline and attention. You feel like you're sort of the eyes of the world are with you. Eyes of the world are on, are on you, and so many people are with you. A year later, it can be much lonelier. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the things, too. And, and you know, I have plenty of discussions with people, you know, the, the, the weeks after there's a lot of attention around town and and certainly people felt after that oh well that's not there and, and you have to explain to people that's just how it works that's it's there for a bit and then we had to move forward into the the real life slog of getting through the issues but you know what there's a lot of positive message positive messages to pass on here there's a lot of lessons to be learned um if ending i mean there's lessons to be taught by our, our local leaders in you know community management and just how to deal with trauma how to deal with these situations so i think like any of us look we're going to look back and figure out what could we have done differently uh you know what do we maybe need to be prepared for now that they weren't before but there's a lot of good to take out of as well i'm always trying to think of the silver linings here and there were a lot uh and i think those need to be recognized and remembered as well well, Andrew, as always, thank you so much. Our best to the people of of your uh, your constituents as well. I know it's been a rough year for them. And of course, we continue to, to think about the folks of Porto Basque. Really appreciate the opportunity. Touchdown of the OSIRIS-REx sample return capsule. A journey of a billion miles to asteroid Bennu and back has come to an end. Marking America's first sample return mission of its kind and opening a time capsule to our ancient solar system. 
Indeed. That was the moment that a space capsule delivered by the Osiris-Rex spacecraft landed safely in the Utah desert on Sunday, carrying a piece of asteroid in a capsule known, I mean, the asteroid is known as Bennu. Uh, it capped off a really remarkable mission that began years ago, but culminated with the liftoff of the craft in 2016. It began orbiting the asteroid two years later after a three billion kilometer journey. The spacecraft collected the sample in 2020, then set off on its lengthy return trip in May of 2021. And here we are in September of 2023, and it's back. It's the first time the agency has accomplished that feat. I think Japan has actually done it before, but the first time that NASA has done it. Lockheed Martin, Director of Deep Space Exploration, Ari Vogel, says samples could provide clues to how the solar system was formed. This has never happened before, and we may be able to unlock some really, really important clues to where we came from. And Canada will get a cut of the spoils here for the first time in our history. Uh, we played a role in this, a pretty important one, as it turned out, because the landing on Bennu was a lot more complicated than had been predicted. And the Canadian Space Agency provided a laser, laser altimeter that played an important role in that long mission, as I mentioned. Program scientist with the CSA, Carolyn Emmanuel at Morissette, says Canada's share of the uh, asteroid, we're going to get a little piece of it, is about 4% of the total haul. A lot of, most of it's can be kept at the Johnson Space Center in the specially built facility. Uh, but we're going to get 4% of it, which is expected to be several grams. You know, with milligrams of sample, we can do a lot of science. So, and, and a good example is the Hayabusa 2 mission from JAXA brought back altogether uh, five grams. And, you know, there's still, there's decades to come uh, of results on Hayabusa 2. So it's, it's a great size samples. And yes, so we're working on developing the facility uh, for receiving the samples uh, at CSA. There you have it. Canada will become just the fifth country to have received an asteroid specimen. And this was a really exciting day for everyone involved in the mission, many of whom are now on site at the Johnson Space Center. That's where that capsule was brought to from Utah uh, today, where a special facility has been built for it. And that's where we find Timothy Haltigan, uh, who's a planetary senior mission scientist at the Canadian Space Agency and has been involved in this mission. Uh, Tim, thank you. Congratulations. Oh, thanks so much for for being here. What an exciting day! I mean, I mean, in in, in the best of ways, even for someone who's been doing this for a long time, this must be a really exciting day. Honestly, it's just it's completely surreal. I mean, this is something that the entire team, you know, thousands of been of people have been working towards for you know thirteen and some people up to twenty years on this project, and it's it's. Honestly, it's tough to believe, you know, sample arrived safely yesterday in Utah and has now been delivered to the Johnson Space Center. Um, so it's everything we've been working towards for, for well over a decade now. What do you, so what happens now? Do you get a chance to, to, to see it in, in, the, in the near future since it's there? Yeah, so it's going to um, the sample canister. So what happened yesterday is that um, the collection canister that where the sample resides was inside an Earth return capsule. And so it was basically protected um, from what happens when it's dropped into the atmosphere and, and heats up a lot. So the sample inside was very, very well protected. And so when it landed in Utah, um, the sample canister, or the, the entire assembly was put into a clean room 
and the canister was then removed and packaged um, for safe transit today to the Johnson Space Center. So it just got here about a half or about a half an hour ago. Oh wow! Um, we've got it very, very well safely stored. Um, the team is is going through their preparations, and it's only over the next few days that we're really going to start disassembling the canister, and probably over the next few weeks is when we're really going to get a close look at at what we were able to collect. Because I gather they built a whole new facility just just for this. That's right. So there is a specialized laboratory um, here at the Johnson Space Center that's going to be used to to curate the sample. And so when you think about it, one of the things these these asteroid materials are so pristine, they've preserved the chemistry and the conditions of the early solar system. And so you can think about these as the raw materials of the solar system that haven't changed in the last, you know, four plus billion years. And so it's absolutely crucial for some of the measurements we want to make to make sure that we're not contaminating the sample with anything from the Earth. Uh, so even things like water vapor in the atmosphere could be harmful. Um, any sort of bacteria on Earth could be harmful. And so there's a very specialized room where the sample is currently under nitrogen gas um, and is in a perfectly pristine lab that's been designed here at JSC. You mentioned it already, Tim, but this is the end, or perhaps the beginning in some ways, but the end of one part of a very long journey. I mean, this has been going on for years, and it traveled unimaginable distances. <laughs> and I, I gather the asteroid itself wasn't what was expected when when the, when the, the lander arrived. Oh, we have been surprised every step of the way. Um, so this is a mission that was uh, formally selected for flight uh, back in 2011. Um, we launched in 2016, and the spacecraft arrived in 2018. And all of the information that we'd had in terms of the mission proposal and the mission planning and design is that when we reached the asteroid, um, it would almost be like a sandy beach with, with a few boulders here and there. And so we figured we're going to a nice, smooth asteroid, uh, you know, no problem. We'll have almost too much room to, to pick from where we can get a sample from. And when we got there... And, and turned on the cameras and opened our eyes. Um, it was littered with thousands and thousands and thousands of boulders, um, unlike anything we ever expected. And so we had to redesign the entire approach we were going to do for measuring the asteroid, um, re, you know, replan how we were going to try to pick a sample site, um, redo the flight software for how it was actually going to acquire a sample. Um, and everything along the way has been just perfect. So, you know, we managed to collect a sample in 2020, um, and then we had to stick around with it because uh, it wasn't in the right place in space to come home until um, about May of 2021. And so it started its return journey then, and just yesterday the the capsule arrived back safely um, in the Utah desert. And so this has been 6 billion kilometers of flight for this spacecraft, and, and here we are safely now with the sample um, back on Earth. Carrying, carrying that all oh so precious cargo. And, and there was even yesterday, there was a few things that I mean, everything all's well that ends perfectly well. But even yesterday, there was a, some issues with a shoot and so on. I mean, it's been, I can only imagine it's been a bit of a white knuckle ride for all those who've been waiting for this thing to come back. Well, that's it. I mean, anytime you have maneuvers like this, it's tremendously complicated. I mean, when the um when when this when the canister or when the earth return capsule hit the top of the atmosphere it was going on the order of 40,000 kilometers an hour uh and within 13 minutes or so had to be sitting very gently on you know on the ground and so what was amazing is that um the engineering worked uh we had the the canister land very very softly um at just the speed that we wanted it to land um it happened to land upright so it was perfectly uh intact no damage to it at all, and it honestly couldn't have gone better. 
Tim, uh, Canada had a, played a, a role in all this because we are also um, able to get a little piece of it as well. That's right. So Canada has been involved in this mission since the very beginning. Um, so one of the ways that we've been happy to participate is we've supported scientists from various universities across the country that have been on the science team from the very beginning, um, designing the mission, designing the operations, planning the observations that we had to um, that we had to take, and also planning for all of these incredible analyses that we're going to be performing on the samples now that they're back on Earth. Uh, but also, Canada had one of the primary science instruments uh, on board the spacecraft. So we contributed the OSIRIS-REx laser altimeter, or OLA for short. Um, and this was a 3D laser scanner that allowed us to make a very, very detailed uh, shape model of, of the entire asteroid. So you can think about you know, the asteroid as about the size of the CN Tower. So it's about oh. 500 meters across. And we now understand the shape of this asteroid down to one point every four or five centimeters. Oh, wow. uh, so we, yeah, no, we took uh, three billion individual measurements. Um, we put them all together. And the reason that the shape to understanding the shape at that detail is so important is for two things. Uh, one is that it sets the context for the geology. So one of the big questions we have about asteroids is how do they form and how do they evolve? And understanding the shape of asteroids actually helps us to recreate that history and tell us more about how they formed and evolved. But from an engineering standpoint and from a sample planning standpoint, um, we really needed to pick a, a location on the asteroid that would be safe for the, uh, for the spacecraft to go down and collect the sample. And so it was with OLA data that we were able to determine that the site that we chose at the end uh, would be safe for the spacecraft to try to contact and so we really played a crucial role in making sure that the that the mission was able to collect a sample in the first place. Especially given the challenges, as you mentioned earlier, uh, with with the with the asteroid when you got there, that it wasn't nearly as as perhaps simple as the wrong word, but not nearly as simple as you expected it to be, perhaps. Well, that's exactly right, because we thought the, the way that it was planned is that we would have a target size of about 50 meters across. So nice, big, broad, open areas that that we would be able to put the spacecraft down. And when we took the first imagery of, of the asteroid and realized there was not a single location across the entire surface of the asteroid that was free of obstacles 50 meters across. And so it was through the imagery and the shape modeling then that we were able to find a location. It was only about 10 meters across that we ended up oh. targeting. Um, so think of, you know, a few parking spaces wide was uh, was the target that we were going at. And so it was thanks, uh, again, to the imagery and to the OLA data uh, that we were able to to determine that that was a place that we could get the spacecraft to. And the team just did an amazing job uh, getting in there, getting a sample and, and getting out safely. I know there's so much you're going to learn from this piece of of, of asteroid, and uh, and and so much. I gather seventy percent is going to stay where it is. Other little pieces of it are going to be portioned off to those who are involved in this project. And yep. Canada gets gets its little slice too. How does that differ? I mean, what will Canada be looking for that would be different from say what's happening at the Johnson Space Center? Well, I think so. One of the crucial things is we'll have Canadian scientists um, as part of the science team doing the initial analyses on the 25% of the sample that's being allocated to the science team to um, to carry out the, the investigations and answer those big questions that the mission was really designed to answer. But the Canadian portion, this is so exciting for us because um, having a portion curated in Canada makes us only the fifth country on Earth 
uh, that is going to be curating materials returned from outer space. And so it's incredible for us because these are samples that we are going to then be able to make available to Canadian researchers and to international researchers for for generations. And so, you know, the way that I look at it is is not just about the science that we're going to be doing in the next months and, and even the next year, but the type of, you know, what types of investigations and questions are we going to be able to answer 30, 40, 50 years from now? And just for the for the for listeners to know, what are those what are those questions that this that this asteroid piece may be able to answer? I know it's very broad, uh, but what are some of the questions that uh, that these samples may be able to answer? Well, the O in Osiris Rex is for origins, and that is one of the really big uh, questions we have about the origins of the solar system um, and potentially even the origins of life. So asteroids are formed, the way I like to think about it is like when you're cooking dinner, right? I mean, you've got all of your ingredients on the counter, you're chopping things, you're mixing things, and eventually you cook and and bake them. But there's a couple of leftover bits of all the things still on the counter uh, that haven't been mixed into the main dish. And so when you think about going back into the cosmic kitchen uh, four billion years ago, the asteroids are really the leftover raw materials of what went into planets before all of those ingredients were mixed and baked and dried and aged and crumbled. And so this is our way almost analyzing a sample of an asteroid is almost like going back in time by four plus billion years to understand what were the conditions of the early solar system and what were the materials that were there? And so for us, one of the huge questions is the origins of life. So we know from meteorites and from other asteroid sample return missions that there's um, organic molecules, so things with a lot of carbon in them. And these are sort of the backbone of amino acids and, and pro- or amino acids are the backbones of proteins. And so really it's not life itself, but rather the ingredients that went into building life. And so one of the thoughts is that as the Earth was forming early, early in its history, that it was bombarded by um, by asteroids. And so carrying these organic molecules that started mixing with water and other ingredients to eventually form life. And so now we're going to be able to go back and really sample these materials from four billion years ago and understand, are they the same as what we have on Earth now? And if so, why? Are they different from what we have on Earth? And if so, why? And so just we get to keep asking better and better questions. The Galactic Kitchen, what an amazing place to be to find <laughs> what an amazing place to be. When do you get a chance to to see uh see said sample? Do you know yet? Uh it's it's gonna be a while still, um, okay. because obviously we've been working for, you know, 13 years, like I said, on the mission, and so we're not gonna rush it now. Um the the plan is over the next few days is when we're gonna start disassembling the sample canister. So we'll start to have a first look at some of the materials that that are inside. But it's only really over the next few weeks that we're gonna be able to fully understand the volume of material that came back and start doing some very, very preliminary analyses and measurements to understand what it is that we brought back. So we're hoping by sort of, you know, early to mid-October that we'll have a very, very good sense of of what we were able to collect. Well, Tim, congratulations to the whole team on getting this far and what exciting times lie ahead. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. We're going to go to uh, an underwater. We were just in space or, well, we're back on Earth with this piece of asteroid that returned to Earth yesterday that's now in Houston. We're going to uh, come a little closer to home and let's talk jellyfish. I don't know what your opinion of the jellyfish is, but if you've ever spent time in the ocean, you've probably learned to avoid them, right? Humans tend to 
not like to get too close to jellyfish, and they're pretty they're pretty prevalent uh, if, if you're in the ocean. And you know what you, we don't understand, we often forget, is they're really an undeniable evolutionary success story. They've been around for at least 500 million years in the Earth's ocean, and they are incredibly well adapted to what it is they have to do, which it turns out, I mean, we don't know much about them. They don't have a centralized brain, which is interesting in of itself. Uh, but despite this, there is this one type of jellyfish called the Caribbean box jellyfish that researchers have found can potentially remember its past experiences the way that everybody else does, and that they can actually learn to spot and dodge previously encountered obstacles in a tank. So if they can't process anything, how do they manage to do this? And it raises some pretty fascinating questions. Now, this kind of jellyfish is seen everywhere in, in the Caribbean Sea and the central Indo-Pacific Ocean, and they're tiny, they're tiny, tiny, but very they can be very poisonous as well. But how is it that this little creature uh, that has a parallel-like brain structure, apparently with about a, a thousand nerve cells in each of its four parallel brain structures, so about 4,000 nerve cells in all. The human brain has about 100 billion nerve cells, so you can do the comparisons. But are jellyfish just these incredible creatures of evolution? So they just do what they have to do. And we're learning more about them. They're not much studied. They're somewhat studied, but not much studied. And as we learn more, this is a pretty interesting advance that maybe jellyfish can learn from their mistakes. How does that work? Jessica Schwab is a jelly, jellyfish ecologist. Yes, there are such a thing. Not many of them, by the way, but there are such a thing. And she happens to be at UBC, so not too far away. Jessica, thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Tell me a bit about your, I mean, people, I think everyone is familiar with jellyfish, more or less, but tell me about your fascination with jellyfish academically. Oh, gosh. Um, I think my academic fascination is just that there is so much still to learn about jellyfish. They're pretty understudied um, as far as animals go. Um, yeah, there's just so many questions to be answered. Every time we find something, even if it's small, it seems to be new. And um, it's an exciting time to be a jellyfish researcher, for sure. Why is that? I mean, they are, they are so common. I don't imagine anyone's ever set foot in an ocean without seeing a jellyfish of some sort. And yet we seem to, um, they seem to be forgotten for some reason. I was saying earlier, maybe it's because we don't eat them or, but we just kind of, they're there and we don't pay much attention to them. But the fact that there are so many of them in so many places must say something about how important they are to this whole ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a point that um, most people don't know is that jellyfish are one of the oldest animal lineages on the planet. Second only as far as we know to sponges. And so um, this is why research like this uh, neural project is so exciting because jellyfish are such a basal animal lineage that any findings we find out about them eventually track back to our evolution in the like long-term scale. Yeah, this research is what what I called you about, which I found really, I saw saw the headline, of course, found it really interesting. But I guess to, before we get there, tell me a bit about how the physiology of a jellyfish that makes that makes us perhaps underestimate them sometimes or often. This is great. So I guess when you've been on the planet for 600 million years, you've just had so much time to, um, I guess, get used to your environment and learn how to live within it and optimize it. And so the word I like to use for jellyfish is always streamlined. They're not simple. They're just very streamlined. They're perfectly efficient at what they do. They need very little. Um, they take in very little. And so they um, just are, are, I think, found in so many places because they've just had so much time to refine their body plans and physiology to be very efficient. 
right. Tell me about their brains or, or and brains. I, I use the plural on purpose, but I'm not sure it's the right term. Yeah, it's complicated. I, I have a hard time explaining this generally when people ask, because um, it is well known that jellyfish don't have brains. I would say that's one of the top facts when just the general public talks to me about jellyfish. They say, oh, they don't have brains. How does that work? Um, and it's hard to conceptualize because we don't know what it's like to not have a brain. So of course, it seems like enigmatic that something could survive without a brain. But the best way I can put it is that our nervous system is basically separated into three parts. There's input, there's processing, which is our brain, and then there's output. And uh, so jellyfish are just missing the processing piece of it, mostly. Um, but they do have input and output. It's called a neural net. Um, and so I always give the example of like, if I were to bump into a wall, I would think, oh, I've bumped into a wall, I should move away. But jellyfish don't have the processing. And so they just bump into a wall and move away, but there's no thought or thinking about why it's mostly reactive. And yet this research found that in fact, despite that, that jellyfish, the ones they found, at least in the, with this one particular kind of jellyfish, that they do in fact learn from their mistakes. And that that's remarkable, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It is very interesting to think about what like the role of processing and what we do every day. Um, it's interesting to think that even though jellyfish are quite reactionary to their environment, that they can still like develop habits and that reaction can become a pattern in the way that we think about learning and uh, memory. What does it say about the jellyfish themselves? Oh, I mean, this was, I gather, uh, part of this ongoing research you've been talking about, but it was, it was counterintuitive, forgive the pun, that they, that they <laughs> would be able, be able to learn from their mistakes? Yeah, I guess so. So I am not a neurobiologist and I wasn't specifically involved in this study, but um, what I could gather from it is that they just um, like wanted to see what would happen if they exposed them to the same stimulus repeatedly. Um, and yeah, it was counterintuitive because as far as we know, I guess memory and learning exists within the brain, but now I guess this is challenging that. Yeah, it's It says a lot, and you mentioned it already about but one of the reasons we don't understand jellyfish or perhaps don't appreciate jellyfish is they are so perfect for what they do <laughs> uh, that 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 they don't really need much else. I mean, they uh, and that's and that 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 aspect of them uh, in terms of our ability to underestimate them is interesting as well. What, what are, where does research go? Because there are so many different kinds of jellyfish. Right. And I gather do they all do about the same stuff. You got the polyps, the medusas, and uh, that's about as much as I know. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's plenty. Um you can generalize jellyfish to that, but of course, as with anything in biology, there are so many exceptions and so many caveats and so many different models. And um, yeah, there are so many species of jellyfish in the world that they can generally be captured like that, but you can always find an exception to the rule, which is why it's important um, now that this study has been done on one species to continue and keep looking into other species of jellyfish and see if this is consistent across jellyfish broadly. So what are there? What is their benefit then? I mean, they are so plentiful in the ocean. We often, I think, are kind of have an aversion to them. We we associate them with stings and so on. Uh, but what is their role in in this great big ecosystem of ours? You know, that's a question that we're still trying to work out. Mm. Um, for example, some of my research right now is looking at the nutrition that jellyfish can offer to a predator. So until fairly recently, it wasn't widely accepted that jellyfish were eaten by much. I mean, there were the classic examples of sea turtles and, um, you know, sunfish and things like that. But uh, now that we are getting better at detecting stomach contents and doing diet analysis with things like DNA and other like biogeochemical tracers, I won't get into it, but um, basically there's fancy science that's happening. Right. And we're finding jellyfish in the diets of things we didn't previously find them in. 
Um, and so this has kind of, again, changed our understanding of what their role might be in the broader ecosystem. Um, but like I said, there's still so much to, to learn and know. Um, things are changing every day. Right. We don't eat them, but but something does. There are populations that do eat jellyfish. It's quite okay. popular in Asia. Okay. Yeah. I was lucky to visit a jellyfish fishery, actually, that was in Japan. And mm -hmm. then I was I had planned to go see another one in Mexico. Um, but jellyfish fisheries exist and they process jellyfish for consumption. Um, a big market is in China, but then there's also um, a, quite a big market in Southeast Asia, as far as I understand, like Vietnam and um, Thailand. I should um, know this. I, I've lived. I've lived in those places. Maybe and you I just never, never tried saw, Well, I never saw it on the menu. I must yeah, have never. Either that, or if you did see it, maybe you'd want to. Maybe you'd think twice. But I, next time, um, Jessica, you're off to Australia to do to do more. You just went on a kind of world tour not that long ago, and now you're off again. Um, what are kind of, I mean, what's the difference between doing research here in Canada and then doing it in other parts of the world? Where I gather the jellyfish are probably a bit different. Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, I've been lucky to get these travel opportunities because it's given me a more global perspective on jellyfish ecology. Like you said, the jellyfish in Australia and Japan and France are all so different from um, the jellyfish that we have here in Canada. And I think it's been great to not only get the perspective of what are the unique you know, roles and positions of jellyfish in those food webs and ecosystems, and then compare it to the ones that they have here in BC, but then also to make connections with my jellyfish colleagues. There are so few jellyfish researchers across the globe that it's been great to spend this quality time and learn from some of the world's best jellyfish researchers. So I'm just so lucky to be able to do this journey. Yeah. What are some of the things that, you, that come up in conversation now that the things, the questions you really want to answer? Because again, it feels like anyone who's spent any time at an ocean, know, by the ocean, knows what a jellyfish is, but we think so little about them or not, not so little of them, but at least we don't think of them often. Yeah, no, it's true. Um, that was a big difference I noticed in Canada. I find that people that don't spend a lot of time near the ocean actually don't really know that jellyfish are even here in our waters. So I think that's interesting. Um, whereas if you go somewhere like Australia or Japan, where they have a much bigger, um, I mean, like the negative impacts are felt a lot more by the population. In Australia, for example, there's the health and safety issues with really powerful stings that can be dangerous. And then um, in Japan, like the the intersect of jellyfish in their fisheries. So I guess we're um, in a unique position here in Canada where we don't have as many of those negative effects with jellyfish. Um, but unfortunately, I guess that means we don't think about them much. So uh, yeah, it's interesting. Uh why do they have such powerful stings considering as far as we knew they didn't have a lot of predators that might be that might be a chicken and an egg argument but why <laughs> is it they they have such powerful stings because they can be awfully powerful for a creature that doesn't actually doesn't look like a predator of any type yeah so another function of an animal having like a venom or a sting is to catch their own prey so mm -hmm. we expect that they use it to catch fish and other things that they would eat um, but again, like I said, black box, it's not been well studied. That's just our best guess right now. Right. So what will you be doing on this, on this upcoming trip? I'm really excited to be headed to Australia. Um, it's going to be summer there, which will be great. Yes. Um, I'll be there for about four months. So I'll miss the Canadian winter and the rain here in Vancouver. Um, and our plan right now is to see which jellyfish appear in the field. So every year it's kind of a toss up as to who shows up. In the waters but the plan is to go out and collect jellyfish from the field and then we have a partnership with griffith university and SeaWorld in the gold coast which is just south of brisbane um, and we'll be doing some feeding experiments so i do a lot of nutrition work um like it's it sounds complicated but essentially it's just drying down jellyfish 
and then looking at what they're made up of, like proteins and fats and carbohydrates and things. And from that, we can get an understanding of what nutrition they might be offering to a predator that eats them. And then of course there's layers to that, like how, what they eat affects what they're made up of and what the conditions are and how that affects what they're made up of. And there's lots of layers to it. Yeah. And, and, and just to, to listeners in general, next time, or even to me, next time I see a jellyfish on the beach or in the water, what should I be thinking? Because again, they're sort of to be avoided mostly, but they're quite beautiful when you see them kind of move around. They are quite stunning and prehistoric and old looking, like just something from another world often, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's what attracted me to jellyfish research in the first place was just how how beautiful they were. And the more I worked with them, the more I had an appreciation for um, you know, like how, how just well they've integrated in their ecosystem. Um, yeah, I, I love the thought of more people getting out there and thinking about jellyfish. Yeah. Not just sort of, um, uh, yeah, not just avoiding them, which is what most of us do when we see That's, them. It's well, fair. If you don't know, you shouldn't touch. <laughs> there you go. Jessica Schwab, have a, have a great trip. And uh, thanks so much for taking the time today to shed some light on jellyfish. Thank you. Have a great day. We were in the we were in space, then we were in the oceans, and now we're gonna hit the lakes and rivers of the Northwest Territories towards the ocean, by the way. And what was a absolutely epic canoe trip. I've been on a few canoe trips in my day. We never made it too, too far, you know, a couple of weeks, uh, a lot of complaining back in my teens at camp. Uh, but this one was an absolute journey and a half, 3,000 kilometers, 125 days more or less across the vast wilderness of the Northwest Territories, and completely solo. Um, Callum Watson, he's 24. He just completed that journey, had some help along the way. There were a few incidents that demanded that uh, people come to his aid and they did. So there's some really great stories in there as well about people coming to help you when you need it the most. But we wanted to know exactly what it was like, why he set off on such a long journey. This isn't the first time he's done this as far as I can tell. And Callum Watson joins us now. Callum, thanks so much. Welcome back. Hello. Thanks for having me. Callum, what a what a trip! What a trip! What a, what what, uh, what made you decide that you wanted to tackle the Northwest Territories? Because because that's that's pre- it could be pretty lonely out there. I get the impression. Oh uh, yeah, for sure. Like uh, I guess I just kind of I love the wilderness and I love the North, and uh, I just was kind of a dream of mine to spend a, a whole summer kind of on a big long canoe trip. I'm going to ask you the the uh, the obvious question about what one packs for 125 days in a canoe. Um, so yeah, like so, my canoe was a 15 foot canoe. So I had basically uh, two barrels of food, and then I had two dry bags with kind of my, you know, my tent, sleeping bag, sleeping pad, all that. I had brought a couple books. I had some camera gear to try and film stuff. Bring a lot of fishing tackle. Um gun for bears just in case i've got yeah that's probably that's a lot of stuff most of it, i mean it's I still solar uh, yeah, solar it's, panels yeah. to charge stuff mm-hmm. oh that's great as well and I, what was really cool about it too is I, I mean this is this i'm getting ahead of myself but you because of modern technology your parents could actually people could actually track you right while you were doing this which is kind of cool. yeah yeah so there's a well the company garmin they make like a they have like an in-reach uh, satellite messenger you can get. So I brought one of those along, which I pretty much bring on any canoe trip or anytime I'm away from cell service, just just in case it's good to have for safety. Yeah. Because you did this, I gather you did this in Alberta before, right? Like a long one, uh, a long trip. S- 
Saskatchewan and Manitoba before. Right. Oh, and so and another really epic, really long trip as well. Yeah, yeah. I'd been on a couple twenty-day trips, and then last summer I did a thirty-five-day trip. Right. So this one was even longer, obviously. Yeah. So this one was a big, uh, a big jump up. So what was it like? I mean, I can't imagine. I've been on canoe trips. I think a lot of us have seen sort of the glory of being out in the middle of nowhere all by yourself and how incredibly vast the landscape seems and the sky seems and so on. But this was of a whole different order, I think. Yeah. Yeah, like it was definitely a, on a, a lot bigger scale than most. So tell me about, tell me about so like your days. What time did you get up and what time did you get going and how did you pace things out and all of that stuff. What was your routine like? Um, so, so in the Northwest Territories, like basically anywhere in Northwest 60th parallel, as a lot of people know, is like kind of the land of the midnight sun, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, uh, because of that, you know, from like when I started in early May, it was only, it was a little bit of darkness at the start, but after that, pretty much until about middle of August, you know, I, I had the midnight sun with me. So basically that kind of just allowed me to really like, you know, I'm, I wasn't even really traveling by the clock at all because there's no really, really rush with the midnight sun. I kind of just, you know, if it's if it's windy, I'll just wait for it to calm in the evening. So I kind of just uh, travel when the going's good, eat when I'm hungry, and sleep when I'm tired, and just kind of repeat is basically my schedule for most of it. That sounds that sounds pretty good, Caleb. <laughs> that sounds yeah. Pretty, it was sounds it's, like not, it's amazing to, to be uh, to be free from the the clock. Kind of is something you you don't get in today's world. That's for sure. No. How about the fires? I mean, there were such there were, we read, we talked so much this summer about the fires in the Northwest Territories. Did that impact you in any way? Um, no, I was kind of lucky. Like I, like I got kind of got in before a lot of the fires got really bad. Um, like I, I left from Fort Smith, and Fort Smith later ended up getting evacuated. Went mm-hmm. by Yellowknife, which later got evacuated. I was by Beshko, which later got evacuated too, and. uh I didn't really, uh, I had, on Great Bear Lake, there's about three fires I kind of paddled by. They were kind of, uh, one of them had burnt, or two of them had burnt right to the lake, but they were kind of just smoldering, and then and there was one that was a pretty big fire just, just in the distance, but it was probably only a couple kilometers from the shore. Yeah. Tell me about some of the highlights when you think back to it now. There must be a couple, I, mean, I know you haven't been back for that long, and you're probably just, probably just all settling into your mind, but there must have been a few yeah. experiences that were, that really stand out. Um, yeah, like I'm trying to think it's, it's hard. I keep getting asked, like if there's, you know, one thing to pick up, but it's, I guess it's just hard with the whole, such a long thing, but, uh, yeah, Yeah. it's an unfair question Um, because it's hard. It's hard to say. It's like, Hey, how was your, how was your vacation over Christmas? What was your favorite part? And you're like, well, I don't really know what, 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 what kind of stand, but generally then what kind of stood out to you about this one? Because you were gone for a lot longer. Uh, and it was a, and it was a really, like you went through some really interesting parts of the world places that people don't get to see much of yeah like it was a beautiful place and a lot of places i'd I'd really wanted to see i've kind of wanted to visit for a long time but it was it was just cool to be to be kind of out on the land for that long of a period like i'd been on yeah other long trips before but on this one was just different because like being out there for so long you just get kind of i was more kind of in tune with traveling on the land than ever before and it's just uh when you're out there for that long it just it, life gets so simple and it's just so free and it just feels just so so much more real when you're out there rather than you know in the comforts of society right especially with the i didn't mean i mean i thought of the midnight sun but especially with the midnight sun because it would have been a completely kind of 
completely out of this world experience doing it that way. Yeah, yeah, and it really came in handy on a lot of the like the large lakes like Great Bear, Great Snake Lake. There was a lot of days where it'd be too windy during the day, so I'd basically just kind of sleep during the day, and I would just some nights I would just paddle all night if it was nice and calm. It was just uh, just beautiful, just nice and calm and silent, and just me in the lake. Tell me about the foot, because I gather this became an issue, and, and you, you actually got a little bit of help. Some people came and, and helped you out, and your parents were sort of paying attention, but you had a bit of a run-in. You had a bit of an issue with a foot. Yeah, so I had a... So before I got to uh, Great Bear Lake, I was on the Cam's River system, and normally you kind of follow that river all the way to Great Bear Lake. It's like the normal canoe route, but I kind of... Uh, I've been studying the maps, and I found this way that I thought was going to be a a bit of a shortcut and it did turn out to be a shortcut, but I had, uh, I had asked around at, you know, local people at the, the community before, which was 10 days paddling before I got to this portage. And I asked them if they knew any info about the trail. And everybody told me that it was a really old trail and just to not take it, just go the long way. But, uh, I knew I, I wanted to try this shortcut. So I went there and yeah, it was a, it was a really bad trail. It was pretty grown in. There really wasn't, really wasn't much of a trail at all. But uh, so I had a, a grueling day of these big long portages, and uh, I think what happened is my it was a combination of maybe stress and my my boots being too tight, and then just being you know walking through the bogs all day. But uh, my somehow like my my toes like all lost circulation. So when I took my boots oh. off at the end of the day, my toes and even like the maybe like half an inch up my foot was just like pure white. And uh, oh wow. So I just got in the tent, took them off, and I just looked at them, and I was like, oh, that's not good. But I was just so exhausted. I just wiggled them for a bit, and I just fell asleep because I just had, had no energy to try and uh, deal with it. But uh, then I woke up the next morning, and they were actually still they were still pale in the morning. So then I was kind of a little bit worried. So then I, I actually just spent that whole day just like uh, just wiggling my toes and massaging them almost and just trying to kind of warm them up and everything. So I just pretty much rested that whole day. And then uh, my my toenails on my big toes got, like, they were loose. Like, you could just, like, lift the toenail right up. Like, oh, they'd become oh. unattached. And then the, the skin underneath had turned blue, I think, just because it was kind of, like, I guess, dead That's or something. That's not a good sign. Yeah, Yeah, no, it wasn't a good, no, sign. Wasn't a good yeah. sign. So, then, uh, so yeah, I just spent that whole day just resting because I was a little bit worried about what was going to happen. And then uh, I spent one day resting, but then I had basically two more days of kind of hard portaging to get to Great Bear Lake, which once I got there, then I could just, you know, sit in the canoe and I'd be good. But, but on those next two days, basically those, the blue, first it turned into kind of like, like big red blisters of blood. And then eventually I woke, I woke up the one morning and they were just, just yellow with pus. And I had been putting on polyspore and antiseptic every night, but, but it obviously, uh, it didn't do the trick. So I had a bit of an, an infection on my hands there. So I, uh, I had, I'd messaged my dad, you know, just because the like, infection is pretty serious out there because it is. You know, yeah. You're all by yourself. So you're seriously, lo- yeah. seriously end the yeah. trip. So I, I reached yeah. out to him just with the garment. I, I just said like, uh, you know, if this gets bad, like I'm, I might need maybe to get antibiotics like flowing in or something, or we're just going to have to like kind of make a plan here. Cause I knew I was too far too far away from the next place, you know, if the infection did get out of hand, I wouldn't be able to make it there in time. Wow. That's kind of scary, but, Caleb. Uh, I, yeah. And then you got, and then someone shows up. So I read sort of about, about what happened on the other end because your dad was arranging this. And all of a sudden someone comes to the rescue for you. 
Yeah, so then my, my dad phoned the, the community of Delaney, which I ended up going through later, and they're just the most amazing people I've ever met there. So a huge thank you to all those people there. But uh, basically he phoned them, and they said they were going to they were going to make sure that I was okay. They were going to do what they could to get me help. And then uh, pretty much maybe that same day or the next day, all of a sudden I get a, a message on my Garmin from a, a guy I'd never even met, Bruce Kenny, but now I consider him a really good friend. So all of a sudden I just get a message that says, hey, this is Bruce. We're on our way to help you. And then oh, wow. at first I messaged, I messaged him back. I was like, because it's such a, such a long way. You know, I didn't want him want them to come all this way. So I just said, Hey, like maybe do you want to wait a couple of days? Like maybe this will get better. But he just said like, no, we're coming, we're coming to help you. So then, uh, they didn't make it there that first day, but the next day they made it to me. So they brought me some, uh, some salt basically. So I could just, I'd been soaking in hot water, but it wasn't really helping too much. Yeah. But they got me that salt and that made all the difference. And that was it. And then you were on your way, I guess, not that long after that. Yeah, it. yeah. Like so, once I got that salt, and they also uh, the local people like uh, spruce gum is kind of like their medicine. So I was I was using that and the salt, and within like I think two or three days of that, it, it like all the pus had cleared right up. So I was pretty much good to go. Back on your way, and then you arrive. I I, I know there's people have described it uh, who were there about your parents waiting for you when you get to Tuktoyak. Uh, uh, took and you get off and you yeah. complete your journey that must have been great too because you actually made it all that way with some a few bumps and bruises along the way but ultimately you got there yeah yeah it was awesome it was a really kind of incredible feeling to finish i was i will admit i was a little bit sad it was over because i, I had such had such an awesome time but obviously the the canoeing season is, is not is short up there but that's kind of what makes it special but it was yeah, yeah awesome to have my family there at the finish just made it just made it uh, incredibly special to get to see them. I don't know how you top that one, but what's next? Um, yeah, it definitely will Too be early. will be hard to top that one. But uh, I, w- I, I mean, I would after that experience, like I, w- I would definitely like to to do another long trip like that. Maybe even try and make like I got to I got to experience the the three seasons kind of like I got spring summer and fall but i feel like to to really experience the three seasons you almost got to experience the ice breaking up or or the ice oh, freezing wow. in so so maybe uh if i ever did one again maybe i would try and experience one of those aspects but that would take a, a lot of a lot more preparation even than this well so few canadians see so 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 many canadians see so little of this country that it uh i guess it's a reminder of just how awesome this place is sometimes oh yeah for sure like i i think when i was on that journey i was just thinking like you know thinking back to the days when well obviously like the indigenous people have traveled this land forever but uh just thinking back to the days you know when the the first explorer would have came and you know with no map or and you know you just travel across that land with no map like it's just just imagine what they would think to to travel for like a hundred days just through waterways and you, like you just think the land would be just endless. Callum, I'm glad you're home. Welcome back. Thank you so much for sharing that with me tonight. Oh, thank you very much.